If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. As we look at our text for today, if you remember last week, I preached half a sermon. So now we're coming to part two of gaining perspective uh, as Christ is discipling His disciples. And uh, we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. We looked at verse 4 last week. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you, whom to fear. Fear Him who after He is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. Father, as we consider this weighty text, I ask that You would Give us wisdom that You would humble us and lift Christ up. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Being shocked into reality can be a helpful thing for us as human beings. You've experienced it in your life already in certain ways. I'll never forget when I met one of my neighbors uh, when we moved into our house and I was talking to him and getting to know him. And he was sharing that he's probably in his uh, maybe mid-70s, early 70s maybe. Uh, He was sharing with me that it wasn't, but a few years before that he found out he had cancer. And with barely knowing him, he kind of gave me a little bit of his life story. And he says, you know what? I was kind of a jerk before I got diagnosed with cancer. I wasn't a very good husband. I wasn't very good to my wife. And it was a good wake-up call as I realized I might not have very long to live. And uh, he says, I really am a different person. And, and it shocked him into right perspective, into thinking clearly. Jesus in our text is saying words that on the surface, if they don't affect us, we, we're just not thinking hard. They're meant to shock us into reality. You and I do not, by default, naturally have good perspective on what matters and what's important. We don't naturally have eternal perspective. And as we study the doctrine of hell this morning, because Jesus brings it up, 
He says, don't fear him who kills the body and after that. Okay, being killed in the body, what could be worse than that? Well, what comes after that? He begins to talk about eternity. He says, don't fear man. All he can do is kill the body. I'll tell you whom to, who to fear. Fear him who after he kills, after that can send both your body and soul to hell. See, eternity is on display we need to answer the question, what's so bad of the after and what is hell? And that we should reverence God. That we should reverence Christ. That we should think differently. I want to re read an article from Moody Monthly, September 1985, written by John Thomas. It's called The Hideous Doctrine, and it's uh, two or three pages, so this will be a little bit. But I pray that God will use His words to help us begin as we think about what Christ is saying. Here's what He writes. That hideous doctrine of hell is fading. How often have you thought of it in the past month, for, for instance? Does it make a difference in your concern for others? In your witness? Is it a constant and proper burden? Most believers would have to say no. But the individual isn't the only one to blame. After all, the doctrine no longer gets its float in the church parade. It has become a museum piece at best stored in the shadows of a far corner. The reality of hell, however, demands we haul the monstrous thing out again and study it until it changes us. Ugly, garish, and familiar as it is, this doctrine will indeed have a daily practical and personal effect on every believer who comes to terms with its force. Our Lord's words on this subject are unnerving. In Luke 16, He tells us of a rich man who died and went to Hades, the abode of the unsaved between uh, of the unsaved dead between death and final judgment. From that story, a few and, uh, and a few others uh, revelatory facts, uh, we can in infer the characteristics of hell. First, it's a place of great physical pain. The rich man's initial remark concludes with his most pressing concern. I am in agony in this flame, Luke 16.24. We do, we do not make enough of this. We have all experienced pain to some degree. We know it can make a mockery of all life's goals and beauties. Yet we do not seem to know pain as a hint of hell. A searing foretaste of what will befall those who do not know Christ. A grim reminder 
of what we will be spared from. God does not leave us simply with the mute fact of hell's physical pain. He tells us of how real people will respond to the pain. Our Lord is not being McCabe when He says, uh, he, He's just simply telling us the truth. First, there will be weeping. Luke 13.28 Weeping is not something that we get a grip on. It's something that grips us. Recall how you were affected when you last heard someone weep. Remember how you were moved with compassion and want to protect and restore that person. The Lord wants us to know and consider what an upsetting experience it is for the person in hell. Another response will be wailing. Matthew 13.42 While weeping attracts our sympathy, wailing frightens and offends us. It's the pitiable ball of a soul seeking escape, hurt beyond repair, eternally damaged. A wail of a soul, uh, or a wail is a sound gone grotesque because of, because of the conclusions it can't live with. A third response will be gnashing of teeth, Luke thirteen twenty eight. Why is this? perhaps because of anger or frustrations. It may be a defense against crying out or an intense pause when one is too weary to cry any longer. Hell has two other aspects rarely considered, which are both curious and frightening. On earth, we take for granted two physical properties that help keep us physically, mentally, and emotionally stable. The first is light. The second is solid fixed surfaces. Oddly, these two dependables will not accommodate those in hell. Hell is a place of darkness, Matthew 8.12. Imagine the, pers- the person who's just entered hell, a neighbor, a relative, a co-worker, a friend. After a roar of physical pain blasts him, he spends his first moments wailing and gnashing his teeth, but after a season, he grows accustomed to the pain. Not that it becomes tolerable, but that his capacity for it has enlarged to comprehend it, yet not to be consumed by it. Though he hurts, he's now able to think, and he instinctively looks about him. But as he looks, he sees only blackness. In his past, he learned that if he looked long enough, a glow of light somewhere would yield definition to his surroundings. So he blinks and he strains to focus his eyes, but his effort yields only blackness. He turns and strains his eyes in another direction. He waits. He sees nothing but unyielding black ink. It clings to him, smothering him and oppressing him, realizing that the darkness is not going to give way. He nervously begins to feel for something solid to get his bearings. He reaches for walls or trees or rocks or chairs. He stretches his legs to feel the ground and he touches nothing. Hell is a bottomless pit, Revelation 20 verses 1 and 2. However, the new occupant is slow to learn. In a growing panic, he kicks his feet, he waves his arms, he stretches, and he lunges. But he finds nothing. 
After more feverish tries, he pauses from exhaustion, suspended in black. Suddenly, with a scream, he kicks, he twists, and lunges until he again is too exhausted to move. He hangs there alone with his pain, unable to touch a solid object or see a solitary thing. He begins to weep. His sobs choke through the darkness. They become weak, then lost in hell's roar. As time passes, he begins to do what the rich man did. He again starts to think. His first thoughts are thoughts of hope. You see, he still thinks as he did on earth, where if he felt pain, he took medicine. If he were hungry, he ate food. If he lost love, there is more love to be found. So he casts about in his mind for a plan to apply the hope building in his chest. Of course, he thinks, Jesus, the God of love, can get me out of this. He cries out with a surge, Jesus, Jesus, you were right. Help me. Get me out of this. He waits, breathing hard with desperation. The sound of his voice slips into the darkness and is lost. He tries again. I believe Jesus. Jesus, I believe now. Save me from this. Again, darkness smothers his words. Our sinner is not unique. Everyone in hell believes in Jesus. When he wearies of his appeals, he does next what anyone would do. Assesses his situation and attempts to adapt. But then it hits him. This is forever. Forever, he thinks. His mind labors through the blackness until he aches forever. He whispers in wonder. The idea deepens and widens and towers over him. The awful truth spreads before him like endless overlapping slats. When I put in 10,000 centuries of time here, I will not have accomplished one thing. I will not have one second less to spend here. As the rich man pleaded for a drop of water, so too our new occupant entertains a similar ambition. In life, he learned that even bad things could be tolerated if one could find temporary relief. Perhaps even in hell, one could rest from time to time. Things would be more tolerable. He learns, though, that the smoke of his torment goes up forever and ever, and he has no rest day or night. Revelation 14, 11. No rest day or night. Think of that. Thoughts of this happening to people we know, people like us are too terrifying to entertain for long. The idea of following someone to endure, or the idea of allowing someone to endure such torture for eternity violates the sensibilities of even the most severe judge among us. We simply cannot bear it. But our thoughts of hell will never be as unimaginable as its reality. We must take this doctrine of hell, therefore, and make sure that we practically are affected by it. A hard look at this doctrine should first change our view of sin. Most believers do not take sin as seriously as God does. We need to realize that in His actual plan, sin deserves eternal punishment in hell. 
we can actually learn by comparison to hate sin as God hates it, as the reality of hell violates and offends us. For example, so sin violates and offends God. As we cannot bear to look upon the horrors of hell, so God cannot bear to look upon the horrors of sin. As hell revolts us to the point of hatred for it, so also God finds sin revolting. The comparison is not perfect, but it offers a start. Second, the truth of hell should encourage our witness. Can we ever again hear a sigh of weariness, see a moment of doubt or feel pain without being reminded of that place? In all honesty, can we see any unbeliever watch his petty human activities, realize what he has in store and not be moved with compassion? It encourages us to witness in word and deed. That hideous doctrine may, or that hideous doctrine may grip our souls in dark terror and make us weep, but let us be sure that it prompts us to holiness and compassion. I was written by a guy named John Thomas. Something I read a long time ago had an effect on me when I read it. I dug it back up this week, tried to consider if it's scriptural, if it's biblically helpful to consider what it says. And almost everyone has a temptation to want to make hell different than that which Jesus describes it to be. So let's consider the horrors of hell in order that we may all cling to Jesus and see His glory. In verse 5 of Luke 12, Jesus says, But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Here's the definition I put in your notes for hell. Hell is the place of future judgment where one is eternally separated from all aspects of God's good presence. Hell is a place of future judgment where one is eternally separated from all aspects of God's good presence. And I separated this into two categories. The relational goodness of God's presence and the creational goodness of God's presence. I don't know if you've ever been left out of something you really wanted to do in life. If there was ever a party you wish you were invited to, but weren't invited to. If there was never ever something you had the opportunity to do and then something came up, you weren't able to do it and you were left out. We've all experienced Something like that. And I can't imagine anything worse than being the rich man in the story that Jesus tells 
of the rich man and, uh, and Lazarus, the poor beggar. They both died the same night. <laughs> the rich man is in Hades, the waiting room for hell. The poor beggar that begged at his gates was at Abraham's side uh, with those who are going to go to heaven. And the rich man looks across this abode and he sees that he's left out. And he just wants Lazarus to come back. He doesn't even necessarily want God, I don't think. He just wants to be satisfied uh, or a little comforted in hell. He wants Lazarus to dip his finger in water to comfort him a little bit. There's this separation from that which is good. The greatest good anyone could have is a relationship with God. That's what you're created for. To be in His presence. Not only to be in His presence, but to be in His family. To be a child of God. Those who trust Christ are united to Him in those ways. And yet Jesus gives warnings throughout His ministry. Matthew 8, verses 10-12. through 12, When this centurion trusts Jesus, Jesus says, and when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To know the presence of God that has been given up because of your sin and your subsequent rebellion against your only hope to get out of that sin, Christ is something that will cause anyone to weep and gnash their teeth. To be left out as Jesus continues to teach His disciples in the very next chapter of Luke, Luke 13, starting in verse 22. We read, And He went on His way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to Him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? They're starting to realize, wait a minute, these Pharisees aren't getting into heaven. We're listening to Jesus' teaching. And suddenly... Those in heaven seem much fewer than they originally thought. And Jesus responds to this question by this, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. There's going to be many who die who are going to think they're getting in. Think they're going to enter and they won't be able to. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he'll answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. 
And you taught in our streets. They're saying, we were around you. We were a part of your ministry. We were in church. We were around your people, basically. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. The horror of your sin is it separates you relationally from God, from your Creator, from the only one who can secure you, from the fountain of joy you're cut off from because of sin. And Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Who's the narrow gate? He is. The religious ones are rejecting Him. And He lets us see into the future of what's in store for them. He said, what a kind Christ to even warn them ahead of time while there's still an opportunity. Do you realize how many souls have died physically and are in Hades and have no hope, no opportunity, and you're sitting here by God's grace still sucking air, still with the opportunity to come to Christ. Do you realize how short life is, how long eternity is. Does Jesus' teaching hit you? All his man can do is kill your body. After that, he can do nothing. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who decides when your last breath is taken. And after that, can send you to hell. Separation from God is what makes hell so horrible. You're separated from all aspects of God's good presence. You don't get to get away from God in hell. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. God is present in hell in His wrath and judgment forever. Someone might say, well, this is why I can't be a Christian. This is offensive to me to believe in a literal hell that goes on forever is something my sensibilities can't handle. And I say, I understand that, but it's because your mind and your sensibilities can't handle how great God is. If you knew how great He is, you would understand why hell had to be eternal. He is eternally, infinitely glorious and your sin has shaken your fist. You've flipped off the God who created you, who made you, and you said, I prefer not you. I prefer to worship your creation. I prefer idolatry. And hell is just because of the one with whom our sin offends. Because you can't comprehend His greatness, you can't comprehend the punishment. 
Those who try to make hell merely going out of existence mar the glory of God and Christ. I'll never forget John, uh, John Piper saying, so those who believe in annihilationism, that you just go out of existence when you die. He said, imagine this, Hitler who rebelled against God his whole life, killed thousands. Hitler standing before God and God says, Adolf, you're going to go into non-existence. And Adolf would start laughing and say, ha, just what I thought all along. Just what I thought would happen all along. I just go into restful non-existence. How much anxiety did you have before you were created? None. How much regret did you have before you were created? None. And yet, because rather than people going to the Bible, letting God tell us realities, because we want to create realities that are acceptable to our palate, we read the Bible, we change the Bible. Many people change hell into something that, oh, people just choose it. It's just non-existence away from. No, it's not. The second reality of hell, separation from God's the worst part. But one of the ways you're separated from God is you're creationally separated from God. Here's a reality. Did you know that Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork? Day to day pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. Which means every non-believer wakes up in the morning and sees the sunrise and sees the goodness of the presence of God, whether he believes in his heart or wants to worship God for it, he gets the blessing of the heat. He gets the blessing of the beauty. He gets to look up to the stars at night and feel warm fuzzies around his fire pit and feel good feelings because God's glory is on display in creation. James says this, do not be deceived, my brothers. This is James 1.16. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I'm sorry, but bacon is good. And that comes from God, and non-believers eat it. And their taste buds say, wow! Think of all the ways non-believers are experiencing the presence of a good God right now, all by the common grace of God. John the Baptist said, a person cannot receive one thing unless it's given to him by from, or unless it's given him from heaven. Anything a non-believer enjoys is given to them by God. Every breath, every time they lay down on a soft bed, 
every time they get to have a relational connection with their children is by the common grace of God. 1 Corinthians 4-7, Paul says, is there, does anyone see anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Now, this is non-believers, right? They're enjoying the good presence of God's creation. They deserve to go to hell the moment they were born. They were born sinful. Adam and Eve deserve to die immediately, and yet death was set in progression physically. But by the common grace of God, they got to live for a while That's all by God's common grace. All received by them. Matthew 5.43, Jesus says, You've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He says, love your enemies because you should be like me. For He makes the sunrise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Love your enemies and be like me. God is showing grace to everybody right now. In Acts 14.15, we read, In past generations He allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without a witness For he did good by giving rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, there's so many people out there right now who say, I don't believe in God. God's a joke. God's not real. And all day long they're enjoying gifts from God. And they have no clue. The definition of sin is that we exchange God to worship His creation. Let me read it to you. This is why hell exists. This is why hell is just. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. If someone says, why is hell eternal and so horrible? Because what sin is, is looking at God, sizing Him up, your Creator, the one who has only been good 
to you and exchanging him for his creation. And that's evil. That's as evil as evil can get. But it feels normal to us because we all do it. We struggle with this every day because we have a sin nature. But because it's normal, because everyone struggles with it, doesn't mean it's not horrid and wrong and hell is proof of that. You will only make an exchange for something less valuable for something more valuable. And sin is, I'm going to take this thing I don't value as much for this other thing I value more. And that separates every human being from God. That puts them under the wrath of God. So you ask, how come the Bible doesn't just say separation from God is hell? Why was it talking about, why, why, why does the Bible talk about physical suffering? Psychological torment. Doesn't that distract from God? No, it doesn't, in fact. Because in hell, think of this physical relief. Think how much physical relief you and I get all the time. We feel good. Sometimes we feel bad, but then we get better. And even those who really feel bad don't feel as bad as they could. There's some relief. There's some hope. But in hell, you're separated from all of God's presence. Even His creational presence. You don't get physical okayness in hell because you're totally separated from Him. I don't think we're going to have time, but go read Revelation 21 and 22 if you want to know what the creational presence of Christ is in the new heavens and new earth. It's amazing what our eyes get to see, what our mouth gets to taste. The people from every tribe and tongue and nation that we get to have a relationship with. There's relational separation from God in hell and secondarily, you don't get any relationships with anyone in hell. You don't get any physical wellness. There's no rest. What a horrid thought. It's just what the Scripture says, Revelation 14.11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Do you realize how for granted we take sleeping at night? Just feeling average? Do you, man, no psychological rest. The worst part about hell is that you get to think. You have an eternal mind that thinks. Luke one fifty one says, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. You want to know one of the worst parts about hell? Is you're going to be stuck with your thoughts forever. 
over and over and over. There's no light. We take for granted <laughs> light. You'll be, often Jesus says they'll be cast into outer darkness. I remember when we took the girls to Crystal, was it Crystal Cave? Jewel Cave. Out in the Black Hills this summer. And you know, you go down three quarters of a mile into this cave and then they say, all right, the original cave explorers had this, a lantern. And they turn this lantern on and they shut all the lights off in there. And it's like, whoa, you can't see anything down here. <laughs> Barely anything. And then they say, and if they ran out of oil, it would be like this, boom. And they shut it off. And I've never seen black like that. And you want to know what happened instantly? A bunch of little arms went, yeah, <laughs> grabbed onto my legs. Which is proof that stuff we can feel secures us. That's a gift from God to stand on secure ground. If you've ever been in an earthquake, I'm sure it's a horrible experience. Stability, the things we take for granted that won't be there for those who are separated from the creational goodness of God. I say all this. The reason why I think this is a loving sermon is because one, it's true, but two, it puts Christ on display. Because the gospel is this, that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What does that mean? It means the Father spoke to the Son who is God. They're both God. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For perfect fellowship. And they had an agreement. And the Son said, I'll go purchase them. I'll go pay the price. I'll go drink their hell. See, as we feel the weight of what hell is, do you realize when it says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that Jesus came to bear the weight of hell for everyone who would ever believe in Him? When Jesus says, take this cup from me, what's in the cup is the wrath of Almighty God as Jesus is on the cross. If you don't know what hell is, you don't know what Jesus' love for you is. If you don't know what hell is, you don't know how bad sin is. <laughs> My hope is that you're desperately squirming to cling to Jesus saying, He's my only hope. And I hope that it's not just that you want to get out of physical pain, but it's the separation from Him. That's the thing. What opportunity. We ought to worship like no one's ever worshipped. We're alive. We can look at Christ. We can say, I'm a sinner. I have no hope. He's my only hope. We can cling to Him. I don't know. I've, I've read these verses a thousand times, but I study hell all week and I read them afresh. I read them anew. Listen to this. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. (laughs) Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, which doesn't just mean life forever. Yes, it's life forever, but it also means life to the full, the greatest life, full presence of God, full blessings of God beyond what we can imagine. How about this verse? For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive to to the Spirit. You realize that Jesus, if you trust in Him, will wipe away your sins and bring you into the relational presence of God so that even while you're suffering on this earth, Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So David can write, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me, right? You see that? He's, we're never going to be separated from Him. What promises we have. How about this one? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is none. How about this one? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an amazing Savior we have. I pray that we would be bold people who Don't fear the rejection of man. Worst case scenario, they could kill your body, Jesus says. That's the worst they can do. But rather, live your life wanting to glorify the Christ who died for you. Have reverence for Him. Fight your sin because you know God hates it because you've looked at hell. You should fight your sin with passion because your Savior Paid for your sin. Let's cling to Christ. Let's reverence God. Let's let eternity become our perspective. You see how easily we lose perspective. But Jesus, as He's discipling His disciples, as Jesus is preparing to die, He's preparing them to die but have eternal life. And because they were faithful to the call, because the Spirit of God empowered them, we're here in Aberdeen, South Dakota, knowing the Gospel because it spread across the earth. Father, thank You for Jesus. 
Thank you for the hope that we have. Let us not be people who put our hands over our eyes, who don't want to think about hell, who don't want to consider the implication for our friends and family that don't know you, our neighbors. Let us be people who live in light of reality. Let it affect the way we spend money. Let it affect the places we put our hope. Let us live in light of reverencing you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.